You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Matthew 17, 14 to 23. And when they, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it, came out, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Amen, thanks Sam. Let's uh, pray and ask for the Lord's help as we uh, reflect on this passage, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're distracted people. There's little devices in probably every one of our pockets that has a million interesting things for us to explore. It is hard for our minds to focus. And yet here we are trying to reflect on what it means to be created and what it means to be truly human and to live the good life and to live a life that's pleasing to you. And so Father, please send your spirit now to still our distracted minds that we might see Jesus Christ, and in seeing him get captivated by this vision of him, and that we might find ourselves growing in a deep and robust faith even this morning. Work powerfully through your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this issue of deep fakes, deep fakes, has been a serious issue in our world for some time, and there's been all kinds of fear about how deep fakes will affect election uh, you know, uh, future democratic elections if you, uh, affect the future way of our world. And last week, you may know there were some AI-generated explicit and very inappropriate pictures of Taylor Swift that began spreading on Twitter. And the issues of deep fakes have been a, a serious problem. Um, right now, AI can make it such that you can see an image of Justin Trudeau and he can say virtually anything you want him to say and it will be virtually impossible to distinguish between the true Justin Trudeau and the world of an AI-generated fake. And as soon as we find a way to realize that it's a fake, the AI can sort of self-improve to such a degree that we're entering into a place where it's going to be virtually impossible uh, to, to understand what we see. And this has m had big consequences globally, as there's fake videos of Vladimir Putin, there's fake videos of Joe Biden, you know, fake videos of Trudeau, all, all the political figures saying certain things it has caused great consequences, and the governments have not known what to do. But now that Taylor Swift is effective, the governments have affected, the governments have kicked into action, okay? <laughs> Democracy, not a big deal, but Taylor Swift, darn it, no one touch her. 
Um, and so governments this past week, actually, there's been a lot of work trying to figure out how do we pass laws? You know, is it possible that we can make it illegal to share these images? That if you get caught sharing a deep fake uh, image or video, then, then we will squash them. It's become a huge problem. And I found myself, you know, sympathetic to the lawmakers who want to see some way to fix it. Obviously, it's, it's utterly reprehensible to think, you know, our face and my voice can be used to say virtually anything anymore, and we live in a world of deep distrust. I found myself reading quite a bit of articles, though, and one that was almost prophetic came from Forbes. They ran it um, a couple of years ago, I think two years ago, and they called out that this is going to be a, a significant problem for the stock market, actually, was kind of the, the focus that they had. But they thought, if we don't get this under control, it's going to be impossible, and the markets could potentially just take a huge nosedive based on fake videos that are released, and traders could manipulate these things to generate tons of revenue. And they, they wrote an article, a philosopher actually wrote an article entitled, Deepfakes are going to wreak havoc on our society, and we're not prepared. Again, this was two years ago. It reads like a prophecy. The article warns that AI was going to get so advanced that it would be impossible to tell fact from fiction. We're basically pretty close to getting there. And then the article uh, warned of this. The recent rise in fake news has led to fears that we are entering into a, quote, post-truth world. Deepfakes threaten to intensify and accelerate the trajectory of this post-truth world. They quote an NYU professor. Nazir uh, Maimon, he says this, the man in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square moved the world. Images of horror from concentration camps finally moved the U.S. into action. If the notion of not believing what you see is under attack, this is a huge problem. Once we lose trust in what we see, it is unlikely we will ever be able to restore truth in seeing again. Now, in this article, I found myself wondering, as a pastor should, well, my goodness, if we're entering into a post-truth world, and if deep fakes are making it such that our instincts become skepticism, our instincts are to not believe even what we see, even what we witness, to not believe these things, then what is that going to do for what it means to practice a religion where faith and trust are so critical, so important? You know, trusting and depending on Jesus are, are so critical. And I can't help but think this world that we are in right now and continue to progress to is a world in which doubts and skepticism are going to be the normal and the instinct, not only in our, our daily approach to the news, but in any of our approaches towards organized religion and any idea that we can know the, the divine, know the unknown. And the question I found myself wrestling to is, what does Jesus think about deep fakes? And what does he think, or how does he view those of us now who are victims of a world of such incredible, uh, false, of incredible lies? What does he think about us as our instincts become that towards doubt and that towards skepticism? And in this passage, Jesus is actually engaging with the question of doubt. He's very much engaging with the question of skepticism. Sure, they didn't live in a deep, fake world, but nonetheless, he's engaging in a culture that is filled with doubts, a culture that just is struggling to believe what they see, and into this world, we're going to ask two questions from this passage. We're going to ask, what does Jesus think of our doubts? And what is, then we're going to ask, what does he do with our doubts, okay? This is what I want to look at this morning. What does Jesus think of our doubts? And what does he do with our doubts? Like it or not, we are a doubt-laden people, a people laden with mistrust and skepticism. What does Jesus think of our doubts first? Well, this passage gives us something of a glimpse. 
Let me remind you of the setting for those of you who weren't here last week or who don't memorize my sermons. Last week, Peter, James, and John were up in the mountain. No one memorizes my sermons, not even me. Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up in a mountain with Jesus, and he was metamorphosized. He was transfigured. He glowed and radiated with a, the glory and greatness of a God and had this sort of otherworldly sense sort of attached to his physical being, the transfiguration, a subject of, of much art. In a sense, heaven and earth kissed and touched in Jesus, and the glory of God was revealed. And after that high moment, Jesus and James and Peter and James and John come down from the mountain, and what do they say? They're immediately taken, it seems, by a man who has experienced the opposite of what they've seen, a father who's going through not glimpses of glory, but glimpses of utter hell. His child is demon-possessed. It results in seizures that throw the child into the water or the fire. The demon is trying to destroy his child. If you are to, in a very literal or wooden way, translate the Greek word behind uh, seizures, you would get a lunatic, essentially. This is why the King James Version would say a lunatic. Luna being moon and tick, you know, being a reference to a mental health tick. We don't exactly know what the child was experiencing, but in a sense, the child would come into a, a something of a, a disoriented state and would seize up. And not all seizures are demonic. I'm going to say it again. Not all seizures are demonic. But this one, we know from the text, was the result of demon activity in the life of this child. And this father is desperate. You know, think of, I, mean, I hope you never have to, but think of what it feels like to be in the waiting room at sick kids, you know? A father is desperate and comes to Jesus. The one person he hopes might be able to save and rescue his child from the situation, and Jesus is tied up, and so he goes to his disciples, nothing comes, and now the father comes to Jesus. And we find that the disciples couldn't cast out the demons. The other gospels tell us that this brought a crowd together to take in the controversy. Something of a circus kind of begins to unfold, especially those who are opponents of Jesus sort of take delight in the theater, I presume, and all of a sudden we have a mass of people wondering what is about to happen. The father steps up and addresses Jesus as Lord, as master, and he explains that the disciples were unable to heal his son. And how does Jesus respond? Let your eyes look down at verse 17. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long will I be with you? Quite literally, how long am I going to put up with you? Bring him to me. If you're a student of the Bible, you might hear echoes of something else that happened after people went up in a mountain and had a glorious experience and then came back down to see utter tragedy. You may remember Moses going up to the mountain to be and meet with God. And what does happens in, in Exodus 32 as he comes down from the mountain? What does he find? But God's people have created a golden calf. Glimpses of glory, utter devastation. And Jesus' lament over this generation sounds like the lament of a prophet of old, like the lament of, of Moses, like the lament over unbelieving Israel. And the question is, what does Jesus think of our doubts? What does he think of our unbelief? What does he think of our trust? And what is this passage hinting at or starting to teach us? Now, I want to be careful what I say, because the church for far too long has addressed doubts with shunning. And if you had moments of doubt, you know, you were, you were forced into hiding. It was beautifully portrayed um, by Meryl Street in that movie with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think it might even be called Doubt. But what does Jesus think of our doubts? What is his disposition when he sees us caught up in doubts? Church baggage aside, what does he see? What does he say? Well, he, we have to say from this passage, when Jesus sees unbelief, when he sees a lack of trust, he's utterly grieved. 
He's distressed. He's exhausted by this, this unbelief. Why? How long will I be with you? Come on. This is a picture of Jesus that's almost unusual throughout the Gospels, to see him this exhausted, this frustrated. And yet here he is. He's overwhelmed by the faithlessness of the, the people that are in front of him. Because what is doubt? You have to understand this if you can understand how I could say Jesus is frustrated with our doubts. What is doubt? At its core, doubt is not depending, not depending, not trusting God at his word, not taking Jesus at his word. This is at the core what doubt is. The people can't trust that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the hero God has sent to make things right. And the disciples are so doubting Jesus, they've, they've come to believe that their ability to heal is related to something of a technique, something of their own power. They, they eventually, in the passage we see, go to Jesus and say, how come we couldn't cast out the demon? You know, what's going on? Why, why don't we have the power? What's the technique we needed? And this is why Jesus is grieved, you know? Because this isn't about technique. They, they've missed it. They have failed to understand who God is and use the one resource that God has given faith and trust in him, the revealer of God, to bring this healing. Maybe I'll illustrate it this way before I lose some of you. When my kids were younger, um, I spent a lot of time teaching at least one of them how to ride a bike. I won't tell you which one that is, but you got a 25% chance if you guess after the service to one of them. You know, I was teaching my kids quite a bit to ride a bike, and I see one trend of young kids as they ride bikes. For whatever reason, our world has decided that kids' bikes are going to have coaster brakes, you know, where you pedal backwards and you lock up the back tire. And something happens, at least with my children, where I teach them to ride a bike. There's a small hill that they go down on a dead end, and after a while, it eventually leads into an intersection where there's a good chance a car might come at any minute. And so as I'm teaching them to ride a bike, they finally start to get it, okay? They're keeping their balance. And, you know, a little wobbly, but you see, they're going to make it. And as a dad, you get incredibly excited, and you start screaming, yes, go, 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 until all of a sudden you say, stop, stop, stop. And you realize teaching a kid to ride a bike is only half the problem. You also have to teach them to stop, you know. And as they're zipping down towards this particular intersection, I've seen the same trend over and over again with all of my kids as I taught them to ride the bike. Their instincts do what? They tell them to put their feet out to start to, to put their feet down, to spread their legs out and try to stop themselves this way. And this is utterly devastating. Why? Because the only way to stop this bike is to keep your feet on the pedals and to pedal backwards. But this goes against something instinctual, at least in my children, and maybe they're special. You can, you can inquire about that afterwards. But I've seen other kids do the same. They, they spread their legs out and they end up cutting themselves off from the very mechanism or means by which they can safely come to a stop. For whatever reason, it doesn't come naturally to them, and for whatever reason, their minds work backwards on this. And as a, a father, you're screaming and you're chasing your kid, trying to stop them before they come into the intersection. Now, now, why do I share that? What I'm sharing is this, is that when doubts come upon us, and when doubts come upon these disciples, what Jesus is saying is that, in a sense, something has happened where they're taking their feet off of the pedals. They're, they're trying to cast out this demon as though they could learn some technique, you know, almost like me going up to a friend that you know, knows a lot about squash, saying, help me with my backhand. I seem to be missing this shot over and over again. And Jesus is saying, backhand? You don't understand. This isn't, a, this isn't about technique. The way in which the power of God is going to be generated and pushed into this world is through you taking God at his word, believing him, trusting him. This is how you are going to have the power of God activated in your life. And when you take your feet off those pedals, 
you then lose access to that very power. So your instincts might tell you to sprawl your legs like a child on a bike, but Jesus is saying you have to keep your feet on the pedals. It's by faith, by trusting in God's word that anything is going to happen in this world, any miraculous move will happen in this world, and this is what Jesus is going after. Listen, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. What does Jesus think of our doubts? It's become quite cool in some senses, kind of trendy. It's actually a mark of authenticity to sort of boast of your doubts, to talk of your doubts, to sort of be clear about your doubts. And I kind of get that. Part of why I went into ministry was, you know, what drove me all the way to seminary was actually just wrestling through questions of doubts. And I understand that the church for a long time has shamed, you know, people in the midst of doubts. But what I'm trying to say is this, that whatever your journey is in battling through and dealing with doubts, you must understand that Jesus is grieved when your doubts get you to a place where you take your eyes off him. It's like taking your feet off the pedal, okay? The way in which you have to move forward in the midst of doubts and and the the way in which doubts work is you have to keep your feet on the pedal and trust him in and through your doubts. That's the only way to push through these things. You have to be able to focus and trust him. And for whatever reason, we deceive ourselves into believing that if we just keep our feet off the pedals, if we just be rational adults and take in the data rationally, sort of disconnected from who Jesus is, then we will finally be able to see clearly and move through the doubts. And this grieves Jesus. Apart from faith, there is no power of God bursting into this world. That's why he is so frustrated with the disciples' inability to heal. This is what he thinks of our doubts. They utterly grieve him. He's saying, listen, trust me. Take me at my word. I am trustworthy. I realize it's hard to believe. I realize there's, there's, there's details and complications that are so frustrating. But listen, you've got to trust me. You've got to start by taking me at your word, my, my word. Because anything short of that is sprawling your feet from the pedals. And there is no stopping from that point on. This is what he thinks of our doubts, but we have to ask, what does he do with our doubts? I hope I'm making some sense here. This is an important topic for me. What does Jesus do with our doubts? What does he do for this faithless generation? Does he give up on them? Does he tell the Father, yeah, this is going to be a costly lesson for you, but you're going to learn. You're going to learn. You know, faithlessness is not the way forward. Maybe next time your child gets thrown into the fire, you'll figure it out. Not at all. Not at all. And this is the same picture of Jesus we find throughout the Gospels. He's overwhelmed and exhausted by the doubts of the people around him, and yet what does he do? He still rebukes the demon by his very word, and the child is healed instantly. It's incredible. He still moves towards and and gives the very thing that this desperate father wants. Then the disciples come to him in private, and they say, why couldn't we fix, why couldn't we do this? What, What are we doing wrong? You know, Hocus pocus. Were we saying the phrase is wrong? Uh, Help us adjust our technique like a golfer, you know. I'm slicing the ball. What do I got to do? Are my hips coming around too fast? What does Jesus do to his disciples? And what does he do to us in the midst of our doubts? He puts us in situations where we see that the lack of faith, that well, we see that there's a bigger obstacle than a demon in our lives. There's a bigger obstacle than anything else in our life, and that obstacle is our inability to believe and trust and to take God at his word. When Jesus says that they were unable to cast out the demon because they had little faith, I don't think you should hear him saying that they needed to have big faith, that they they sort of didn't squint their eyes hard enough, clutch their, you know, their hands tight enough in prayer, and say, I believe, Lord, I believe, Lord. There'd be some who'd have you to believe that that's what Jesus is going after, but I don't think so, because he teaches that all they need is faith the size of a mustard seed, And in that day and age, before they had especially optometry as we do today, I mean, this was the smallest seed that was sort of useful and well-known. It was the smallest seed that anyone knew at the time. And Jesus is saying to them, 
You're a faithless generation. If you just had just this tiniest speck of faith, you'd be able to do impossible things, like he, he cites moving a mountain. A, a millimeter seed is, of faith is all you need. He's saying this, that in me is where the power in the Christian life is going to be found. In me is where you're going to find power and victory over your nagging doubts. He's not saying close your eyes tighter and just believe against all odds. He's saying turn your eyes away from your own techniques, from your own sort of abilities towards me and gaze upon me, look upon me, know me and take me at my word. When I make promises to you, trust them, believe them. He's not saying you know, squint your eyes deeper and believe these promises more, although this is important. He's saying you're fundamentally going about this the wrong way. You are a faithless and twisted generation. Your necks are craned the wrong way. This is not the way out of doubts. This is not the way to bring this healing into this world. And coming to me and saying, what technique I need to do would only continue the twisting. He's saying you must turn your eyes towards me. All you need is this tiny mustard seed faith, and you'll be able to do the impossible. When he says you'll be able to, to move mountains, I don't think he's literally saying, you know, you'll be able to flatten mountains. Otherwise, some Christian would have ruined the Rockies for all of us by now. We wouldn't have been able to see them. I think he's just saying, he's, he's pointing probably to the mountain of Jerusalem and say so you'll be able to move, referring to the fact that he's going to, in his work, undo and sort of supersede the work of the temple. But I believe what Jesus is saying is you'll be able to do the impossible. We can all agree upon that. But by just the simplest mustard seed faith, there will be things that will be inconceivable in your mind, and yet you will be able to do them. Why? Not because you're doing them, not because you have the right technique, because you have your eyes on the one who has this kind of power. You have the eyes, your eyes on the one who is transfixed, you know, and transfigured. And as you gaze upon him, you activate this power into your life and into your world. Oh, twisted generation and faithless. He's saying, all you have to do is look to me. Take me at my word. Trust me. When, when my, my children struggle to, to put their feet on the bike and use their coaster brakes properly, and you finally convince them, you must keep your feet on the brakes, or on the pedals, and you must pedal backwards if you intend to stop. You must do this. When you finally convince them to actually do it, no matter how much they doubt, no matter how much their instincts want to spray their, sprawl their legs forward and try to stop on their bike, the only thing that matters about that bike stopping is not how much they believe that pedaling backwards is going to work, but how solid the brakes are. And so even with tremendous doubts, even, even laden with, I think dad's nuts, I can't believe I, my, my body wants my legs to sprawl out, as, so long as they activate the brakes with the weakest of faith, they will come to a stop. And this is, in a sense, a principle of what Jesus is saying. It's not the, it's not the, we're not trying to tell people to put faith in their faith, okay? We're not putting faith in faith. We're not, we're not a people who are trying to say, uh, you know, grow in robust faith as though it's like a muscle that you, you work out at the gym. Jesus is saying, have faith in a strong object. The faith the size of a, a mustard seed, so long as the object is right, will activate the power of God in your life. The, and this is what he does with our doubts. He puts us in situations where we realize we're going about the game all wrong. We're, we're trying to fix our golf swing. We're trying, to, we're trying to fix via techniques. And he puts us into situations where in desperation, all we can do is turn and look to him. That's, that's all the, the only option we have in front of us. We can look to him and take him at his word, or we can continue down this course using sort of our rationality, our way forward, and assuming we'll come to the conclusion we want. You see, this is wonderful news. It's incredible news. Why? Because I think it tells us that there's a, there is a way to be in a, in a deep fake world. There is a way to deal with doubts 
that the Lord will witness and see, and he'll be gracious to and kind to. For far, far too long, the church has been a place where even talking about doubts, saying I struggle to believe, is something that's been met with sort of shame. It's been met with sort of a, a, a pushing forward, uh, pushing against, and such that I think basically as the doubts, were, there's this fear that doubts are like a contagious disease, that if, we don't, if we're not careful, we'll all start to be infected by it. And I believe what we see in this particular passage is that Jesus has a longing to heal this man's son, and he has a longing to teach the disciples why they couldn't heal this son. And there's a type of doubt that turns your eyes away from Jesus and turns in on your own skills and your own abilities to sort of decipher things grander than you, and another type of doubt that looks to Jesus, and as we'll read in Mark's gospel of the same story, says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And there's something holy and healthy about that kind of doubt. And there's something that this passage tells me that when we come to Jesus with those type of doubts, faith like a mustard seed, we will see extraordinary things happen. Even our doubts start to be confronted and undone, and we begin to see with more clarity, so long as we're coming to him, that there's a way to doubt that is actually part of, in a path of maturity in the, in the spiritual life. But there's also a way to doubt that will lead to destruction. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, faith the size of a mustard seed will fix this. Maybe I'll use the Scottish hymn writer's words here. Horatio Bonner, reflecting on this particular passage, says these beautiful lines that I thought, thought were helpful. In a journal entry, writes this, I used to, used to go and say, Lord, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. But as I did not feel uh, uh, all this, I began to see that I was taking a lie in my hand, trying to persuade the Almighty that I felt things which I did not feel. These prayers and confessions brought me no comfort, no answer. So at last I changed my tone. And I began to tell the truth to God. Lord, I do not feel myself to be a sinner. I do not feel that I need mercy. Now, all was right. The sweetest reception, the most loving encouragement, the most refreshing answers, this confession of truth brought down from heaven. I did not get anything by declaring myself a sinner, for I felt it not, but I obtained everything by confessing that I did not see myself one. What is what is Horatius, Horatius Bonar trying to say? Trying to say this, that there's a way to go to the Lord, to turn to him with mustard-like seed faith and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and to have your prayer deeply and richly answered. And this is actually the path towards maturity in the Christian life, path towards deep and robust faith. Let me, that's not good. Let me end this way. I think it's supposed to be mic drop, not note drop, but we'll do that. I don't know if anyone has seen uh, probably the most famous Renaissance painting it, for, for many years in the world, it was the most famous painting at all, Raphael's painting of the Transfiguration. You can find it online quite easily. For, for probably hundreds of years, this was the most famous painting in the whole world. Uh, many people went to go see it. And it's a complex painting, because as you're drawn towards it, your eyes can't help but focus on this sort of glorious, radiating Jesus on top of the mountain, sort of transfigured with this bright, bright white uh, on top of the mountain. But as you actually move closer to the painting, your eyes are fixated first on the transfigured Jesus, but as you move closer to the painting, what you start to realize is there's all kinds of reasons to direct your eyes actually down the mountain. And actually many art critics at the time quite hated the fact that your eyes were drawn to this father holding this boy in the midst of these seizures and suffering. I believe this is one of the most famous paintings because it's a perfect example for us of what faith looks like in the Christian life and the story of the transfiguration with their inability to heal. Glimpses of glory laden with, in a world of doubts. 
This is what faith looks like, glimpses of glory in a world laden and full of doubts. This picture perfectly captures what Jesus is trying to say here. What does he think of our doubts? When they turn our eyes away from him, Jesus is grieved and frustrated by our doubts. He's saying, I have a perfect track record. Keep looking at me. But what does he do with us in the midst of our doubts? He doesn't give up. He puts us in situations where we have no choice but to turn our eyes on him. And then with faith the size of a mustard seed, hears our prayers and answers our prayers. And this is what this passage is all about. And it shouldn't surprise us. In a complexing world where we have a transfigured Jesus followed by an inability to heal, a picture of heaven and a picture of hell almost back to back, that Jesus ends this time of teaching by reminding his disciples yet again that his day of death is coming, but he too will resurrect. And what what he is saying is that there's an immovable mountain between us and our creator, this barrier that separates us to such a degree, it's an incredible barrier that we can't get over, that he in his life will take down by, by giving of his life for forgiveness of our sins and by being raised from the dead, he will bring in a new creation into our particular world. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples, though they don't fully see it yet, is that first we have to go through the path of suffering, of doubts, of frustration, of exhaustion, before we ever enter into this path of glory. He will suffer, then he will get his experience of glory. So will be for the same for us. This is the hope of the gospel that we all believe. Christ died, Christ is risen, and indeed Christ will come again. Put your faith, no matter how thin or small it might feel, put your trust in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you left in your word a story of disciples' inability to believe because sometimes it feels like we're the first generation that struggles to believe. We also give you great thanks that in this passage we find you both frustrated with a type of our doubts, but also ministering to us and pushing us and moving us forward with another type of our doubts. And so, Father, we are people here, I presume many of us have nagging and persistent doubts and questions, and we wish we could rid our lives of them. But we know that won't ultimately happen until the day of our death, until all things are made right. And so in the in-between, Father, we look to you and we say we believe, but help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.